Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Zao, the podcast where we hear and share stories of life lived. Today, our storyteller is Gwen Fry, and she's here to um, share with us, and we thank you for being here, Gwen. And so we're just going to jump right into it. Tell us your story. I sure will. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I am a trans woman, and um, I first knew that I was not necessarily like everybody else uh, when I was pretty young. I was about five or six years old. Uh, I didn't have a word name for it or, or anything like that. It was just... Um, It was just a feeling more than anything else. So um, I went for years and years uh, trying to figure out who it is I was and um, grew up in northern Kentucky, the greater Cincinnati area. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, and part of a really close-knit family, German family. Mm -hmm. Um, The entire extended family would gather together at my grandmother's house and, you know, just hang out. And there was always a sporting event on television and and whatnot. Uh, There was one Saturday uh, where absolutely everybody was there. Um, Folks were pulling in chairs from the dining room and the kitchen. Everybody was sitting in the living room cheek to cheek uh, watching a tennis tournament, of all things. Uh And... um, I was intrigued because there was some kind of controversy or something happening, uh, and I wanted to find out what it was all about. Uh, as it turns out, it was Renee Richards uh, entering the U.S. Open, and oh, wow. and that moment, once I I figured out what it was that, that they were talking about, um, for the first time in my life, everything just clicked, just just like that. Do you? How um, old were you there? Oh. I was an adolescent, probably 13. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it was like my life had meaning all of a sudden. Uh, I, could, I could put a name to who I was. And um, as we were sitting there, my aunt turns to uh, the rest of the family and said, he's a freak. Oh. And my dad chimed in, he's a monster. And so as quickly as that spark was ignit, it was put out. Because I didn't want to be a freak. I didn't want to be a monster. So I went the entire different way. Um, in high school, uh, I ran with a rough crowd. Um, I played football. You know, I did all the kind of macho things uh-huh. to uh, kind of prove myself. And um, But I would always come back to this, this inner understanding of who I am. And um, it never did go away. So um, I went to uh, college, got a BS in psychology, thought I might be able to fix myself that way. <laughs> With an academic <laughs> degree, yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the books uh, will tell me what, I, what, yeah. what, what my diagnosis <laughs> is or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, obviously, that didn't work. Uh, and I felt a call to the priesthood. Uh, at that point in time. So uh, I pursued that. Uh, I got my degree in psychology and went off to seminary. And I thought to myself, you know, I know being the macho person 
didn't work for me. Maybe, maybe if I'm an ordained person, maybe, maybe that'll take these feelings away, this, this identity away from me. Um, and it did for a while. That mm-hmm. first semester in seminary is always a unique experience for uh, everyone. Yeah. It's like <laughs> drinking out of a fire hose. Exactly, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but that didn't work. Uh, did for a while. Uh, but those that understanding of myself came back. Um, fell in love with my um, future spouse at seminary. And once again, I thought to myself, well, okay, you know, if, if, if I can just be loved and love myself out of this, um, it'll, I'll be better. I won't have to worry about that anymore. Um, worked for a while. Uh, but eventually that small voice on my shoulder was right there, but it's not really you. Um, I was ordained. Um, You're Episcopalian. Um, yes, yeah, I'm an Episcopalian. Episcopalian right. um, and uh, I was ordained, uh, and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be the best priest the world has ever seen. <laughs> Surely that will take care of this. Um, and it did for a while, but it came back. Yeah. Uh, my spouse and I, we had a daughter, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be the best dad ever. That will surely take care of this, this feeling, this, this identity. And um, it did for a while, but it came back. And uh, so I just stuffed it, you know, and just kind of dealt with it, um, struggled with depression uh, and all of that for decades, really. Uh, until I, I finally got into therapy, was in therapy for a long time, many years, uh, and I was able to uncover the fact that my identity isn't like cis people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to start uh, working on that and dealing with that and actually accepting that for myself. It was, it was really difficult to, uh, to accept who I truly am at first. That's some serious unpacking. Yeah, yeah. it is. It yeah. really is. Um, but I feel like, you know, everybody everybody needs to find out who they are. Right. And that's, that's, a, that's a tough journey for folks. Um, but, um, but yeah, I did that. Uh, at that time, I was uh, the rector of a small parish in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And um, my spouse was also going through the ordination process at that point in time. Um, and she was um, ordained a deacon, then on the way to, to the priesthood. And um, she was looking for a job. And I told her, you know, you've been following me for over 20 years. Now it's, you know, if you get a, a, a nice position, it's my turn to follow you. Yeah. So that's what happened. She found a, um, a curate, curacy here uh, in Little Rock. Mm-hmm. And we packed up and um, and moved. Um, let me back up just a little sure. bit. And I guess it was two years before we moved. Um, when I when I kind of going through therapy, I under understood this about myself, and I had to come out to. To my spouse Lisa and my yeah. daughter Zoe. I was going to ask uh, if you had, if through that process you had come out to them. Uh, yeah, your family. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I came out to them 
early, early on, although I was scared to death. Oh, gosh. Sure. Um, you know, I was so scared that I had my um, luggage packed and underneath mm, the bed. Wow. So when she said, get out, um, I could do it quickly. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, uh, she didn't do that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she, um, <laughs> she looked at me and she said, Oh, thank God, I thought you were gay. <laughs> so it was like, uh, for the first time in my entire life, I was thinking on my feet, and, and I came right back with, um, well, actually, sweetie. <laughs> so, um, so she took it well. She had a steep, steep learning curve because um, she didn't know what being transgender meant. So... Um, I mean, what year was this? That would have been um, 2010. Okay. Okay. Uh, One of the things leading up to all this, um, over the decades that I just stuffed it and and part of my unpacking process, um, accepting uh, my own identity, uh, was the fact that I was afraid that I would lose everything. You know, here I am, a priest in the church. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know. My daughter, my spouse, and and so that kept me from from really working on it and and coming out for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I did, and like I said, Lisa was was ordained a, a deacon on the way to priesthood. Uh, she was called to a parish here to be the um, curate at mm-hmm. a parish here, and I followed her. Um, Two days before we actually moved in Phoenix, we stopped by the, the grocery store and we were walking across the parking lot. And um, just out of the blue, she turns to me and, um, And she says, once we get to Little Rock, you can start hormone therapy. Oh, wow. And so I did. Um, We moved here, and um, I started hormone therapy on February 19th, 2012. February 19th is a pretty important date for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Um, it, it, it. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's amazing how you're walking across the parking lot in a grocery store. It seems like a very, just a, a throwaway statement. Yeah. You know, just, it's nothing to her, yeah. but it's this monumental gift it, that it she's was, offered you. It was the most precious gift I had ever received in my entire life yeah. uh, because... You know, she was affirming who I was and, and knew how much I, I, I wanted that. Mm-hmm. And um, she did it out of love, yeah. uh, which was overwhelming. It really was. Um, so we got here, and um, the bishop of the Diocese of Arkansas just happens to be a classmate of mine in seminary. As a matter of fact, we were in the same dormitory for a while. <laughs> uh, Pretty good friend. And um, so I figured, you know, this is going to be okay. You know, I may not have a full-time job right now, but, you know, I think the bishop will watch out for me. 
And he did. Uh, once I got here, once we got here, uh, I had a number of kind of long-term supply positions. It's not really, they weren't really interim positions, but uh-huh. as close to that as one could get. Yeah. Um, and so I did that for for a year or two. And um, then the bishop asked me if I wanted to be the priest in charge of a small parish in Pine Bluff. And I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, this is it. Yeah. It was just a part-time position, but, um, you know, three days a week, it was, it was, it was good. It yeah. was really good. Uh, and, and for Pine Bluff, that was a fairly progressive parish. Sure. Um, yeah. That's, that's a, quite a statement. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and it was fun working with them, um, watching them, watching them change and and discover the gifts that they couldn't see because it was right there in front of them. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was an amazing time. Um, the Episcopal Church has a general convention every three years. As a matter of fact, we just finished one uh, in Austin, Texas at the beginning of July. Uh, but in 2012, the general convention was in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, one of the resolutions that, that came about then uh, was um, including... Uh, gender identity and gender expression mm-hmm. into the non-discrimination canons of the church, yeah. uh, which was huge. Um, it passed. That was that was an overwhelming afternoon as well because we're sitting there in the in the peanut gallery, as I call it, yeah. you know, watching what's happening on the on the floor of the House of Deputies. And um, resolution came up uh, for debate, and they talked just a few minutes and went to a vote and it was unanimous. Wow. There was not one nay. Um, Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh, it was amazing. You know, my, my tribe is still fighting for battles that the Episcopal Mm -hmm. Church fought long ago. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to hear a story of, of such progress. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. and, And I'm, I know it's not easy progress, but, um, for one who's stuck in the in, in past conversations, still, you know, yeah, absolutely, it, it's absolutely. good to hear of hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a tomorrow. So, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> there is a tomorrow. Um, with the passage of that uh, canon change, uh, I felt like I had a little bit of cover. Um, so after we got back, uh, we went to the bishop, um, both Lisa and I, and. Um, I came out to the bishop. You know, uh, at, at that point, I'd been on um, hormone replacement therapy, uh, HRT, uh, for six, seven months. Mm-hmm. So it was time, and I felt like, like I said, I, I had some cover. And so I told the bishop, and we sat down and we started um, making out a, a timeline, a plan, a very detailed kind of transition plan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important for trans folks to do, uh, but it's super important for, for folks who are older and transitioning to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was down to the nitty-gritty. Absolutely everything that you could think of was in it, you know. Um, at this time, I was at um, the, the church in Pine Bluff, and that was also part of the plan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
Um, my spouse's parish was part of the plan. Everything yeah. was part of yeah. the plan. Um, and we put it in place. And um, so the coming out day uh, was every month um, in the Episcopal Church, um, there's a vestry meeting. It's mm-hmm. like the governing board of the of the parish gets together and does the business of, of the parish. Uh, on February 19th, <laughs> 2014, um, there was a vestry meeting, and I took the opportunity at um, at the rector's um, address, not really address, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and we call I it came the pastor's report. Yeah, yeah, rector's report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I came out to him. I had a written, you know, thing because I didn't want to screw it up. Yeah. Uh, uh, I invited the bishop and the um, um, canon uh, to also attend the meeting, uh, and they were there. And um, so I came out to them and. I was overwhelmed by the fact that the vestry nearly unanimously uh, was so affirming. Uh, it was it was amazing. Um, there was one person that wasn't so affirming. Yeah. Uh, the first words out of his mouth was uh, were. Does this mean you're going to have eyeshadow on and curlers in your hair on Sunday in the mm. pulpit? Mm. Um, and in that instant, I flashed back to that Saturday afternoon in my grandmother's living room. Uh, he's a freak. He's a monster. So it went uh, uh, as well, I suppose, as expected. Um, before the, we ended that meeting, we um, discussed uh, a, a plan for us to move forward as well. And so there was going to be a, a period of um, learning and, and, and um, talking uh, about what all that meant. Uh, and then a, a period of discernment to see where we would be going from there. Um, so I thought that was good. I mean, yeah, that's, that, that's about as, as, as good an outcome as, as I expected. It sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Friday, uh, the vestry called another special meeting and um, asked me to come out to the entire parish at a special coffee hour after the service on Sunday. And while I thought there were probably better ways to handle it, mm-hmm. that's what they wanted to do, so I went forward with it. Um, Sunday rolls around, and um, average Sunday attendance was 50. Um, so I, I get in the back of the church in the narthex ready to process in, and it looks like it's Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> the church was packed. So uh, obviously someone spilled the beans and, and told folks what, what was going on, um, which was detrimental to the whole process. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So somehow I made it through that liturgy and got to the coffee hour. And that was probably the most intimidating two hours of my entire life. Not only did I have to come out to literally a room full of people, um, but they also had questions. And I had to be the educator at the same time as much as possible. Right. Um, did you did you know all the people there? I mean, when or is it just like people, you know, looky loos just trying to come and and see something? Uh, yeah. Um, I knew all the people there. Not all of them were uh, parishioners, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I knew everyone. Okay. Okay. Who showed up? Um, Fortunately, we didn't have any visitors that Sunday. Uh, <laughs> that would have been interesting. Um, so yeah, and yeah, after it ended, you know, I was just totally uh, and emotionally just drained. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't anything left for me to give, and um, I was walking out to the parking lot with uh, the organist and choir director. And um, he turns to me and said, I'm tendering my resignation immediately. Uh. I asked him to think about it, you know, so we could talk about it in a couple of days or so. And he said, absolutely not. I resigned. Um, He said he owned a a small business in Pine Bluff, and he didn't want this to be associated with him. Mm -hmm. So... While I understood that, it was really difficult to hear. Yeah. Um, so Sunday evening uh, and really Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, um, I probably got seven hours of sleep total. Yeah. Um, I was on my computer, you know, doing pastoral care, um, texting people, sending emails, um, because everybody was was getting more wound up over this, and uh, I wanted to try and stay ahead of the curve a little bit, uh, a lot. Um, so it was Monday I woke up um, after a brief nap, and um, I get a telephone call from a newspaper journalist, in quotes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he wanted to, uh, to do an interview or, or get a statement from me. Uh, and remember that, that, that really detailed treatment? It wasn't on the plan. Uh, 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 yeah, it was not on the plan. As a matter of fact, what was on the plan was no media. Um, so... Um, I obviously turned that down, um, continued with the pastoral stuff. Uh, living in the house at that point in time was really interesting. Um, I could see things happening with the family that I really didn't expect. Um, so that was getting difficult as well. Uh, Tuesday I wake up and um, somebody from the, the parish there in, in Pine Bluff um, 
calls me and I open up my email and I have tons and tons of emails from, from people and uh, come to find out that um, the headline on the top fold of the newspaper right underneath the banner was Episcopal Priest Wants to Become a Woman hmm. with two photographs. So much for not... No media. Yeah. Um, and there's no... Your story's not in there because you you didn't right. make a comment. So that's you're, right. You're, that's right. Yeah. It's yeah. not your story. It's right. a story uh, about you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, there was another uh, Episcopal priest in town that uh, did give an um, interview and asked, answered some questions, and he pretty much threw me under the bus. Uh, so... It was a difficult time. By Tuesday afternoon, um, there were four news stations parked out in front of my house uh, with cameras and wanting to get interviews, and they stayed there pretty much 24-7. Wow. Um, at one point, one of the crews uh, came up to the front door, knocked on the door, and... Uh, as I opened it, first mistake, um, they were they were recording. Yeah. They had the the cameras on, uh, and that was that was that was horrible. Yeah. Um, so all day Tuesday, um, I still tried to stay in front of it, doing the pastoral care stuff with the people in the parish. Um, by Tuesday night, I knew that I was not going to be ahead of it, stay ahead of it, uh, and I saw the final outcome. Yeah. It was the writing was on the wall. So Wednesday morning, I, I I called the bishop and I said, you know, you appointed me to this position. You have the the power and authority to remove me. Please do so. And he did. Uh, that Wednesday evening, there was another vestry meeting, and a lot of folks from the parish were also in attendance. Um, the senior warden uh, read the letter um, from the bishop that dissolved the pastoral relationship between myself and the parish. And after that was read, I got up and walked out. That was, that was the it. end. That was the most difficult 45-minute drive in my life, driving from Pine Bluff back to Little Rock. Yeah. In the darkness. I was going to say, here you, you've told the story of, you're trying to stay in front of it, trying to offer pastoral care, and you, and you even called it pastoral care you mm -hmm. know, through text, through email. But who's who's offering you care back? Yeah, yeah. Are you, it's like here I am in the moment where I need care, right? And and nothing comes, but I'm offering it. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, looking back on it, and I I, I realized that I could have really used some <laughs> yeah something some help. Yeah, yeah. And I did get that to a certain extent. Um, probably not. Uh, no, it wasn't immediately, but later on in the week. Um, I have some some 
friends in the trans community around the around the country and even in the church. Uh, so, um, I was on Facebook Messenger with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and because this broke and it did make the media. Um, there were people all around the world sending me friend requests oh, and wow. stuff like that. Um, and so it got to the point, really, a week after after I lost my job, it got to the point where I got very little sleep, but there was always someone out there on Facebook uh, who would be willing to talk hmm. 24-7. And uh, for that, I will never be a naysayer. <laughs> on social media because it quite literally saved my life. Yeah. Um, that that's a powerful statement uh, right there. Just you know, yeah, the the, the power of connection mm-hmm. that we you know right now there's this kind of backlash against social media and yeah. and, and the way it's infiltrating where whatever, but but the power of connection is what drives it anyway. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, Thursday morning, talking about. People reaching out to me. Um, I had a friend uh, who was the youth minister at one of the parishes here in Little Rock um, reach out to me, and she said, you know, you probably um, need some time for prayer and whatnot yourself. Why don't you come to the 6 o'clock Eucharist uh, at my church on Sunday? You know, it's a very... um, laid back and formal um, service and uh, just wanted to extend that invitation to you. Mm. I'll never forget it at the time. I um, I thought to myself, the last place I ever wanted to be is in church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Fortunately, I got kicked out of the news cycle on Friday. That's when things started dissipating a little bit. Um, there was a late season winter storm coming through. And so <laughs> the storm, the weather knocked me out of the uh, news cycle, thank goodness. And uh, once again, just like just like social media, I will never complain about the weather ever, ever again. <laughs> it saved me. <laughs> Um, so yeah, one of the most difficult days, um, I've had, uh, was that first Sunday because my spouse and daughter went to their church and, uh, I sat at home in a quiet house with no place to go. Yeah. Was there a sense that it was more than just no church to go to? But there's no, I mean, there's, I, there's no identity to yeah, hold on to. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of um, ironic. I found my identity, yet at the same time, I lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, by Sunday afternoon, I decided that you know I really did need to. Um, connect with God, not necessarily the church, but I needed to connect with God. And I remembered my friends um, calling me and inviting me to that six o'clock Eucharist and uh, thought to myself, yeah, I think I I need to do that. Um, So Sunday afternoon, I got dressed and 
left the house for the very first time as Gwen to go to church. Hmm. Because the week and a half had been so hectic, I had lost all track of time and calendar and stuff like that, and uh, especially liturgically. Yeah. So... Um, when I got to the service, it was it was it was wonderful. You know, there were maybe twenty five people there. Um, none of them looked at me super funny, uh, but uh, but I was really nervous about that because you know when I first transitioned the first time out of the house, it's like, what are people going to say and do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no clue. But they were very good about it, and uh, we get started in the service, doing the liturgy of the word, and the deacon gets up to read the gospel. And it was uh, the gospel of the transfiguration. (laughs) 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 I just sat down and quietly wept. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, That was one of the most powerful moments in my life. gets pretty fuzzy after that (laughs) for a while. Um, I was able to make it um, through. Obviously, I'm here. Uh, But there was a point um, where I was in a really, really, really dark place. Really dark place. Like, I've never been in that dark of a place before. Um, It was to the point where I had a plan, I had the materials... And all it would have taken was a spilled glass of water. Mm. But the thing that saved me was love. I couldn't see myself hanging there as my spouse and daughter walked in from the carport. I couldn't do that to him. So yeah, love saved me. Yeah. I had talked myself into it. Um, you know, I, I, I get my hackles up when people talk about folks who um, take their own life. Um, Saying, oh, it's so um, selfish to do something like that. But where I was at that time is I looked at my life and I had accomplished everything I ever wanted to do. I socially transitioned. My spouse was now an Episcopal priest. My daughter had graduated from college. I'm done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I'm done. So, in order to save them, I thought to myself, uh, in order to be kind to them and not make it, uh, not for me to be a, a millstone around their necks, uh, I, I thought I'd... Yeah, you saw it as, an, as a gift. Yeah, 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 I really did. Um,
So on March 19th. <laughs> a month later. A month later. Um, my spouse and I went to a joint therapy session. And uh, here I thought it was going to be therapy session dealing with all the anxieties and stresses and everything that we had been through the past month. And um, we all sit down, and the first words out of her mouth were, were I want a divorce. Hmm. My greatest fear, the thing that kept me from transitioning, <laughs> was losing everything. Yeah. And within a month, I lost my career. And I lost my marriage. On that detailed transition plan, those were the two things that uh, were my support system. Those first five months were really difficult. Um, you know, I thought that I would be able to apply, you know, for another church position and and be hired just like that. Mm-hmm. I was so naive, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. so naive. Um, I'd even call the diocese before I applied for a position. You know, just making sure with the bishop that it would be okay if I applied for a position in their diocese and every single person said, absolutely, you can apply for any position in my diocese that, that you feel like applying to. And, um, there were two bishops, um, one on each coast, um, who almost verbatim, the next sentence out of both of their mouths were, but the church isn't ready for you yet. I'm proving I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) While I don't have a full-time position in the church, and, um, you know, I'm doing supply work two Sundays a month in Benton, of all places, um, I am am making a difference in the church. Um, And I'm doing it just like when I do my public public speaking gigs, um, I do it by being me, just, you know, I have nothing to hide, this is who I am, um, and showing people, um, the power of that vulnerability that I have found, and I, I, I don't use vulnerability in the negative sense of the word, no, vulnerability that, that makes us whole, that makes us human. You um, can't be authentic without it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Authenticity takes risk. Yes, yeah. yes it does. Sure does. For me to say that to you is probably sounds pejorative. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, not at all. Not I at say all. it in an affirming way, it. not in a like, let me explain it for you. You get it, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that that has driven me um, really since late 2014. That's mm-hmm. That's what I get up in the morning to show people. Um, 
that trans people aren't scary. Um, we're real people just like everybody else. And we all go through transitions in our lives. It may not be as drastic as mine, but we all go through transitions. And um, it does. It takes risk. Uh, it takes risking to be vulnerable. Um, It's still hard for me to say this, um, especially on the bad days, but I would do it all over again, uh, as difficult as it's been, yeah. uh, because I found my true self. Yeah. I, I found my authenticity. I found um, that incredible power that um, is in my vulnerability. Uh, and I have found in the speaking gigs and things that I've done that when I share that, other people almost have permission to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I see people changed um, in that short period of time, whatever it may be, an hour, uh, whatever. Um, I see people change. Are you finding your impact more with um, people who are um, struggling with their trans identity or with people who are are struggling to understand gender identity? Yes, both. <laughs> yeah. Both. Um, you know, folks in the community, um, yeah, they look to me as as an example of, of what can be. Um, and at the same time, especially here in Arkansas, um, the approximate population of trans people in, in Arkansas is pretty close to the population of Maumel. Mm. So there's a lot of us out there, and we are everywhere. Yeah. And um, a lot of those folks um, don't have a voice. Yeah. And so I've tried to be that voice for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, my advocacy and activism um, is really important to me now um, just because uh, those there are folks out there that are still afraid mm -hmm. uh, and they can't speak for themselves. Um, so I take that on gladly. And, couple of years ago when the, uh, when the legislature was meeting uh, and they were trying to, uh, to pass anti-trans legislation. There was mm -hmm. a bathroom bill, a couple forms of the bathroom bill that, that were trying to get passed. And, um, and it was interesting the way that they did it because with the bathroom bills, they insisted on... Uh, people using uh, the bathroom that matched their gender on their birth certificate. Mm. Very specific. There was a, another piece of legislation going through that said you cannot change the gender on your birth certificate. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, fortunately... Uh, none of those um, pieces of legislation made it out of committee. Mm -hmm. um, we were pretty organized and, yeah. and um, did a lot of hard work 
uh, both behind the scenes and, and testifying at hearings and things like that. So yeah. um, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Mm-hmm. So, but I love that stuff. You know, I I I, I do that in the church as well. Um, like I mentioned before, I just got back from from general convention in Austin, Texas, and uh, I was instrumental along with uh, a number of other trans people, trans clergy in particular, uh, who were also there um, and getting 11 pieces of, of legislation passed that were trans positive. Wow. So, um, and once again, uh, even some of those resolutions that, that were passed to show the impact that we're having on the church, we didn't even know that they were coming up. Mm. So there were there were deputies uh, and at convention who were including the trans community in the pieces of, of legislation that they developed and presented. Mm-hmm. So um, almost grassroots, all like yeah, know. absolutely. It, 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 it was so good to see. Uh, so good to see that. Um, and we still have a long way to go. I mean, a long way to go. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, what do you see the most significant challenges you're, the trans community is facing right now? But then what are the hopes? Like, what, where do you see signs of, of light in life? Mm-hmm. Um, I see signs of, of light in life uh, just in the visibility of the trans community uh, at this point. Um locally and nationally, especially nationally. Um, we are not the um, people people imagine uh, a trans person to be. We're not some predator or anything like that. We're just normal folks. And, that's, and as we increase our visibility, um, more people are seeing that, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really good thing. Um, you know, we... At, I think part of part of the the movement forward for the trans community is is just being visible and and being present and letting people know that we are in the world and in the community, and they see our behaviors and and, and what we're doing, and it reduces that that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what we see negatively is is fear based. Mm-hmm. Um, all the bathroom bills and and things like that, but we are are succeeding and defeating those. Yeah. Um, well, it seems to me that like like the national conversation there started in North Carolina, I think, mm-hmm. and it was like it had the reciprocal effect because it brought the issue to the surface. Yes, it did, and brought awareness, and with the awareness became uh, a, a soothing of fear mm-hmm. nationally. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the same as a whole, but yeah. but in many ways. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because this, because gender identity is uh, a fluid conversation, I think, mm-hmm. that, uh, is, that, that people's understanding of it is emerging. Um, I, I think um, people trip over it uh, still. Sure, and um, and so there's even a fear. Even even those who are open to trans folks are um, 
are afraid to even speak about it mm-hmm. because they're afraid, oh, am I gonna am I gonna say something wrong? Am I gonna do something wrong? Am I gonna act wrong? But what what's the um how do you how do you find the the difference between uh, somebody who's trying and, and missteps and somebody who's blatantly being um offensive mean. and yeah. mean? Yeah. 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 I, I mean I'm sure you it's, understand. It's, I mean yeah, I think it's, it's like you know it when you see it, but yeah. Like, how do you, where is it, where is the, where you can like go, okay, I'm going to offer grace here, but here I'm going to hold accountable and, but I know grace has accountability, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I don't, I'm stumbling over the question itself, but I, I guess you know what I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, for me anyway, it, it, it's really easy to see. Um, it's easy to see uh, family members and friends and allies um, who stumble over pronouns or whatever the case may be. And you can tell it's an honest mistake. Yeah. Uh, and there are others that use that as a weapon. And you can easily, easily tell that that's what they're doing. So it's fairly easy, at least for me, yeah. to, to see the difference. I had a, a an ex- pretty explicit example of that uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I had my uh, hair done with... Um, um, hairdresser that I've been going to for six years mm-hmm. and um, for the first time ever they misgendered me in front of another customer mm-hmm. um, every time I've gone over the six years they've always misgendered me once or twice mm-hmm. in the conversation but this time in front of a customer it was it felt different it felt different, and um, that really hurt. Yeah. You know, um, but that happens. You know, um, if it is a misstep, if it is just an honest mistake, uh, you can tell. Yeah. Um, you know, when I came out to to my spouse, I gave her the the um, the advice that that I had heard that. Um, you have as long to get the pronouns right as it is that you've known the person oh. before they transitioned. Okay. So okay. Um, if, for example, you know, my spouse knew me for 20 years. Uh, you know, she has 20 years to get it right. <laughs> and I know, I know she's going to do that. Right. And, and you know, I know it's not malicious. Yeah. Um, so... It's pretty easy for me to cut people slack. Yeah. When people do misstep or use the wrong pronoun or whatever, um, piece of advice for, for those folks, um, just say you're sorry and move on. Oh. Don't don't apologize all over yourself. That just Follow, makes it yeah. worse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are there are there um, are there are there missteps that that just stick in your crawl though? I mean, is it like? Um, or, 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 or not even missteps. Are, are there? Are, are, is there a treatment of of trans folks? Or, or I guess you can't speak for everybody, but for you, like when this happens, it just this is the thing that just bugs me. The thing that bugs me the most is when I'm walking downtown, or you know, just anywhere, uh, in a crowd of people, and um, all of a sudden you see a person with their friend pointing, pointing. at me and whispering and. Um, 
that really makes me angry. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that that's that's being me. Yeah. That. Yeah. 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 And it's ama- an amazing thing. I'll, I'll I'll throw this out there. Um, for the first time ever. Well, let me back up. Every day that I leave my house, I don't feel safe. Mm. Ever. Ever. Um, so I always have that level of, of anxiety um, floating around. It's always, it's always there, um, looking over my shoulder, knowing exactly where everybody is. When I have a speaking gig, uh, I like to get there at least 45 minutes early so I can see where all the entrances and exits are because I might need to know where they yeah. are. Yeah. Um, just taking precautions like that. Um, yeah is is um, something that is just part of my life now and and doing simple things like like um, getting a driver's license you know it, it's no big deal for most people but but for a trans person to go in and get the get the driver's license and and having to, to go through um, potential discrimination and stuff like that and it does happen quite often oh, I'm sure that um, no, just the simplest things. Yeah. For me, getting a driver's license is a pain in the butt. For you, it's pain. Yeah, it's, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. But the flip side of that is I'm able to lean into my vulnerability, and people are able to see that. Yeah. So um, as difficult as it is, um, I always try and see the positive side. Is, I was going to ask: Is there is there part of that where you're? Um, it's another part to claim your authenticity. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's it's every every moment that you get through like that is I have I am being authentic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Where I was going with the, the not feeling safe thing was um, in 2015. I was invited to be on a panel uh, at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina. And uh, for the first time post-transition, I did not feel any fear whatsoever when I left the room. Oh, wow. Um, it was, it's such an affirming community. Uh, it, it, it's just amazing. Yeah. It, it's truly amazing to, uh, to be in the midst of, of, of a community like that. Um, you know, uh, I... Uh, I noticed it because for the first time since I transitioned, I didn't see the whispers to friends and the pointing and things like that. Everything was an affirming experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an amazing place. I can't say enough good things about the Wild Goose Festival. That's cool. (laughs) That's cool. When it's all said and done in 50 years, when the the book's written on on Gwen Fry, what do you... What do you want your story to be? I, I mean, if you and you've you've told us the story, all of it, but what do you want? What do you want people to take away from from who you are and the and and your authentic self? I think the 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 one thing that I want people to take away from my story, my life, um, is to know it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's gonna hurt. But that's the best way to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only way to be human. Um, and if I can do it, anybody can. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I'm, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, and, and Me too. anybody who listens to this podcast knows I, I quote her about every two minutes okay. on, on this. But but it's all of what, I mean, all so of it's, her work it's is everything she's saying. It's stuff. vulnerability yeah. That, yeah. that you cannot live without vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, and we're taught the opposite. We're taught do everything That's you can right. to protect yourself. Right. Do everything you can to do. And even, even in your grandmother's living room watching that tennis match, mm-hmm. y- y- the message you got was... Don't show your authentic self. That's right. Don't be vulnerable. That's right. Um, and uh, and it's taking that armor off mm-hmm. that is the process of life, mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to to take the hits, to, mm-hmm. to to go through the pain, that you find the true authentic self. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I loved I loved the way you told the first part of the story where you're talking where you kept saying it helped for a while, but then it didn't. Yeah. And and or or, or and the, but you kept saying I tried to be the perfect seminary student. I tried to be the perfect husband. I tried to yeah. be the perfect father. And it's that perfection that is trying to cover up the vulnerabilities. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, that's that's powerful. So well thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Well certainly thank you for having me. But before anybody goes okay. on this podcast, they have to go through the lightning questions. Oh fine. everybody gets the same questions. Okay. They're they're fun and easy. Okay. Uh, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would it be? London, England. What do you do to, dis- to de-stress? Take my shoes off and walk in the grass. Ah, what's your guilty pleasure? Chunky monkey. Oh, ice, ice cream. cream. <laughs> <laughs> what's one thing you won't skimp on? Like you've got to either have a lot or you've got to have the best. You, can't, you won't buy the cheap stuff or whatever. Uh, craft beer. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, what is something that always makes you laugh? My cat. <laughs> okay, this, you may have already answered this with your what you won't skimp on, but what is your drink of choice? Craft beer. Craft beer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mountains or beach? Mountains. Uh, who is your brush with greatness? The most famous person you've met. Now, this it's not just oh like... Oh, my gosh. Or it can be a person you've passed in an airport or whatever, but it's got to be more than like, I went to a concert or I went to hear them speak. It's got to be a brush with greatness. Okay. I'm going back to Wild Goose Festival okay. again. Okay. Um, there were so many. Um, Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. Um, this past um, Wild Goose Festival... Uh, Amy Grant was the featured artist, uh-huh, uh-huh. and after she finished her um, concert on Saturday night, she came over to the tent that we uh, were doing beer and hymns, which uh-huh. is an amazing thing. It's, yeah. it's so cool. Uh, and she started, you know, singing with us, which was really, really neat. Um, towards the end, I could see that she was getting ready to leave, so I pulled out my telephone to snap a few pictures as she walked by. And um, the president of the Wild Goose Festival saw that me, uh-huh. uh, out of hundreds of people who had their telephones out, saw that I had my phone out getting ready to take a picture. He grabs it out of my hand <laughs> and he yells, hey, Amy, come here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she came over and we had her picture taken. Uh, not only did we have her picture taken, but we were also singing together, which oh, was wow. pretty amazing. Okay, now that is a, that is a true brush with That's a pretty yeah, big one. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> I'll give you that one. Uh, and then what's one skill that you've always wanted to have but never learned? Playing the piano. 
Oh, good. All right. <laughs> those, that's it. That's those are the lightning questions. Perfect. Thank you. Those You're are welcome. Again, Gwen, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I know I over-referenced Brene Brown. You can make fun of me for that. I can take it. But I think that Brene has hit on a universal truth about authenticity, that, that authenticity is only possible when we are vulnerable, and it comes with risk. But the alternative is no picnic. I mean, Brene says that trading authenticity for safety places us at risk of depression and anxiety and eating disorders and addiction and rage and blame and resentment and inexplicable grief. But she defines authenticity as a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let our true selves be seen. This is the deep spiritual truth of Gwen's story. She's showing up, being real, and letting her true self be seen. But did you hear how unsafe it is? I mean, she always has to be aware of her surroundings, and she knows that just leaving her house comes with risk. And her authenticity came at the expense of her family and career and, and all the things she was afraid of losing. But she says she wouldn't change a thing, and that life is a gift. Now, our authenticity may not bring as much risk as Gwen's, but it takes the risk of being vulnerable, of showing up and being seen. This is the purpose of this podcast. When I say we hear and share stories of life lived, it's that life is best when we risk. Life cannot be protected or curated like in a museum. Our authenticity is found in our vulnerability, and therefore life has to be lived. One thing I, I want to add after we stopped recording, Gwen shared with me a little more about her relationship with her daughter. And since transitioning, Gwen and her daughter have had to put in a great deal of work in their relationship. It, it's not been an easy road. But this past summer, they were on a panel together sharing about their journey. And it was the first time they had publicly shared their experiences. And her daughter recently began her Ph.D. in gender studies. And Gwen is so proud. I found that to be a very moving part of Gwen's story, and I wanted to make sure it got added. I want to thank Gwen for the vulnerability and risk of sharing her story with us. I want to thank you for listening and going on this podcast journey with me. As always, thank you to Mr. Carter. Until next time.